no sound okay we've got no sound let's try again all right thanks for letting me know no sound take two what do we know about the joys of going live take three what do we know about the uk covid19 public inquiry so far and does it represent a real chance of exposing the harms caused by the pandemic response if you want the short answer it's kind of yes and no on the basis that does it really will it really expose the harms of the pandemic response probably not will it cover some of the uh, administrative faults of the government in their uh, proceedings possibly in tonight's episode i'm going to be uh, sharing what has happened so far, the latest developments, what's been explored, what has not been explored uh, from what we've seen within the preliminary hearings. If you didn't see my previous episode on the public inquiry, we covered the background to the inquiry, the scope, the approach, plus an overview of what we know about the core modules, who gets to provide evidence and the process for doing so. In tonight's episode, we're going to be taking a look at what's happened so far because the uh, inquiry actually commenced on the 4th of October with the first uh, preliminary hearing for Module 1. And at the end of October, we heard the preliminary hearing for Module 2. And this week, or last week rather, Module 3 was announced. Now, before we get into tonight's episode, I want to make the distinction between a preliminary hearing and a public hearing. So a preliminary hearing, there's only so many times I can say the word preliminary before <laughs> I screw it up. Um, but the preliminary hearing is a procedural hearing in which decisions about the inquiry are undertaken. So it's a process between the legal counsel, uh, Baroness Hallett, who's the chair of the inquiry, and the various different core participants within the inquiry, who are uh, they're the, essentially you can think of them as the ones who have been selected to give evidence within the inquiry, though it's not limited, as I explained in the previous episode, not limited to those who have been selected at core participant level. We'll talk more about that as we go through the episode. But obviously, they have not only the ability to give evidence, but they get full disclosure in the sense that they get access to all of the documentation or a lot of the documentation that's provided by the government. And I'll caveat that later on because there's lots of lots of uh, question marks around what they will and will not get access to and who decides what's relevant or important in terms of the material that gets provided. Um, now, who becomes a core participant is an important question, and we'll be addressing that as we go through this because really... Uh, they are integral into the uh, trajectory of the inquiry. And we'll see when we look at the actual list of approved core participants as we go through this, uh, what kind of direction the, uh, uh, the, the inquiry is already going in. So we'll, we'll look at that as we go through. So to recap, the preliminary hearing is procedural. It's not about the evidence at this stage. So none of the inquiry hearings have actually started to explore any of the decision making, any of the evidence, none of the scientific insights. That hasn't happened yet. That will happen during the public hearings, which are scheduled to begin in 2023. So at the minute, it's all administrative, but it's important to recognise that the decisions that are made today will obviously affect the nature and approach of the inquiry will take when it reaches the public hearing stage next year. So they are critical, though. Uh, it's the juice, I suppose. The juicy stuff really happens once the inquiry uh, gets underway. Now, I spoke at the previous episode about, you know, how these inquiries can take a long period of time. 
And <laughs> well, you can see why. I mean, I've taken the liberty. I say liberty. There's not a great deal of liberty in this, but I've read the transcripts now of both in full of both uh, the um, the hearings that have taken place. They make for very dull reading. <laughs> um, and someone who can speed read, it still took me a great deal of time. It's you know, two full days worth of uh, inquiry materials just to really get a sense of uh, some of these discussion points. And later on this week, we've got an online panel uh, event on Wednesday night where we'll be scrutinizing some of the decisions that have been made off the back of the first two hearings. So as a result of those kind of procedural hearings, um, it leads to things that have been raised by the core participants, the legal team ask questions, and then uh, the, the, the inquiry team actually make decisions based upon what's raised. And again, those things are critical because they will determine how the inquiry runs. And the how the inquiry is set up really is how the game is set up in terms of its probability of finding the kind of uh, distinctions that we'd be looking for. And if you're watching this because you followed the pandemic podcast the last couple of years, you know, 400, 500 episodes, scrutinizing the government's response, you'll hopefully, like myself, have a certain expectation about what that inquiry would look like uh, in order to uh, ensure that those critical elements are considered. And unfortunately, again, if you haven't got time to watch this full episode, I'm sorry to say early indications look like that level of scrutiny we would be expecting is unlikely to unfold, although there are opportunities for us to change that. Uh, and there's also opportunities for us to look at uh, what we can do alongside in parallel to the inquiry to raise awareness of these really key issues. So off the bat, recap, preliminary hearings happening right now, procedurally, next year, the public hearings will actually be when the evidence starts to uh, come come into the inquiry. So uh, the first two modules have been heard and the announcement has been made about module three. And I'll break down now so you can get an indication uh, because what was decided very early on that once the terms of reference, the scope had been decided for the inquiry, uh, the, the inquiry was then broken down into distinct modules where the various components would be looked at individually. So what I'm going to do now is break down in some detail uh, what those modules will cover and how it relates to the preliminary hearings so far. So module one is about the UK resilience and preparedness, examining essentially, you know, how ready was the United Kingdom for something like COVID-19? Um, were the risks uh, or potential risks potent, uh, properly identified and planned for? Did the government have plans in place for something of this magnitude? Uh, was it ready for such an eventuality? It will look at the whole uh, systems level approach from civil emergencies, including resourcing, risk management, pandemic readiness. Um, it will scrutinize the government decision making, seek to identify whether lessons were learned from similar or earlier incidents, whether lessons could have been learned from simulation events, um, international practices and procedures. We've all heard about, no doubt, event 201, which took place. Uh, back in the 2019, which actually simulated a very similar outbreak to this, a coronavirus outbreak, uh, which, of course, many people have drawn lines to uh, as to the proximity, the temporal proximity of that event and then COVID breaking out, understandably. Uh, but but it's not the only simulation that's taken place. The UK's run its own simulations. So have these kind of quote unquote practice events given the UK any real insight in terms of how to prepare for something like COVID. So the kind of first element of the first module really looks at that element of, you know, 
what do we what was in place prior to the impact of uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, COVID-19. Um, it then goes on to look at things like the basic characteristics and epidemiology of SARS-CoV-2 and the, the resulting disease, COVID-19. It looks at the government structure and the specialist bodies relating to risk management, civil emergency preparation, including the devolved administrations, looking at local authorities, private sector bodies, historical changes in these kind of setup. Um, you know, when we did the lockdown summit in 2021, it was quite clear that, that essentially the government from the kind of national level to regional or local level was a mess. Um, and uh, I'm sure that element will be drawn out. You know, this is more administrative and procedural rather than the actual decisions, but obviously it plays a role. Um, it will look at whether the planning for a pandemic, including forecasting, resources, learning from past events, as we talked about, were considered, the emergency planning that were already in place, all of the kind of pre-pandemic preparation. Um, looking at the public health service, uh, including um, whether the public health sector was ready for an event of this nature, does the NHS have the public health capacity? Does it have the appropriate levels of resourcing and funding to mitigate against something like this? Looking at the kind of economic planning for, by governments, including capacity and spending capabilities and commitments, uh, anti-fraud anti -fraud controls with all the crony contracts. You can see quite clearly that they weren't in place. And then future planning, you know, what goes, what does what the UK learn from COVID and uh, what, will it, uh, what will it look at in the future? So you can see module one was really kind of rear mirror facing. It's not specifically necessarily around the decision making, which we'll come to in module two as I give the assessment, the, the overview of module two. It's looking at the preparation prior to 2020 effectively and how ready the government was for something like this. Now, as we talked about in the first episode that we did on the public inquiry, on the background, we looked at how there's going to be external experts <laughs> uh, identified and brought in to support the inquiry in addition to the core participants uh, to give insight on some of the key areas. In this case, relating to module one, which took place on the 4th of October, this kind of initial procedural hearing, looking at some of the epidemiological factors, looking at the, uh, the structures that we've just talked about, looking at the relevant international bodies, looking at the um, history and funding of the UK public health bodies and how they've developed over time, looking at uh, epidemic trends over time, transmission of disease. So there'll be some level of uh, expertise looking at you know, the core elements of the inquiry. Now, how those experts are selected is not very clear at this stage. Questions have been raised. Um, and uh, the core participants will be made aware of these things, but we'll be keeping a very close eye on who those experts are, of course, and how they're selected, importantly. Now, as I mentioned, the public hearing for this uh, will start next year. It's currently scheduled for Module 1 in May 2023, and it will last for four weeks. Now, as I'm looking at all of this background material of the inquiry, it's incredibly evident that the scope is, is very broad, and as such, I do not see how this inquiry is going to stay on time without cutting corners or cutting evidence or cutting uh, participant voices that are relevant to this inquiry. I mean, it's just the scope of it. Just And, and before we get into module two, which to me, there's a lot of, there's a really 
There's a lot of uh, really critical information in module two, which relates more closely to the government decision making as opposed to the uh, kind of pre-pandemic preparation. You can see that there's going to be an abundance. And I talked again about that in the previous episode, that they're going to be expecting tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or even millions of documents, you know, to, to assess all of that, to dis, uh, to make real sense of it, to distill it, to provide it for disclosure. It's going to be a huge challenge, a massive undertaking. And, you know, in order for this inquiry to really make a difference, you're going to have to go through that properly. But my assessment is, I think they're going to be making some real uh, decisions around the core focus of the inquiry, which will, which will extract a lot of that weight from the material that comes in but time will tell how do you make those decisions how do you do in a way that provides proportional representation of different groups uh we'll, we'll look at that as as we continue the conversation now what i'll say about having watched uh, much of the opening module uh you can actually watch these streamed live as they happen if you've got nothing better to do and of course it's our responsibility to do this here on the pandemic podcast so um <laughs> I, I endeavor to do that what was clear from the very first instance is that the opening remarks, everything from the discovery, COVID to the death tolls, um, this kind of chronological verbatim recap of the official narrative with the kind of predicted focus on mortality, it's very clear that this is the emphasis, you know, the, the official view of the world, the narrative that we've become so accustomed to is really what's shaping the initial story of the inquiry in itself. There's no critical um, remarks at this stage. There's no opening questions. It's simply recapping events as the kind of public at large experience them. But again, if you've watched the pandemic podcast or any related material that offers a critical voice, uh, a challenge to the narrative or a counter narrative, if you will, you know, there's, there's much brought, there's much more nuanced sides of the story that that's really important to be covered within this inquiry. But again, my suspicion, it's not going to get covered. Um, my suspicion is, is, is more than just a suspicion when we look through the core participants in a moment. You can see, you know, who's, who's actually going to be providing evidence. Now, uh, there's, uh, there's, there's going to be something called the listening exercise, which is where um, people beyond core participants, the public like you and I, in theory, should be able to provide evidence however um it seems that it's going to be incredibly limited to those who have been bereaved or experienced express harm now the definition of harm is going to be the key piece here because you know we're all harmed in you know every member of the public is harmed in different ways and from loss of livelihood loss of uh, relationships inability to live you know a normal life in my mind these are all harms loss of education the economic mess we find ourselves in, we cannot exclude these things. You know, this is where it comes to the harms of policy as opposed to simply the harms of COVID that, that must be considered. And to what extent this will be included, time will tell. But I'll talk more about the listening exercise because as module two progressed, more has been stated. Now, the final thing I'll say about module one is that uh, we'll look at the core participation list in a minute. But... Um, the TUC, a trade union, and the British Medical Association were originally denied access to the core participant list, um, the original list. Um, uh, but they, they appealed and, and were now included. 
but they commented how the original core participant list was really weighted towards what they described as officialdom, i.e. Pr- uh, bias towards the public bodies. So uh, let's let's take a look look at the actual list of uh, uh, core participants. So you can you can take us you can get a sense of this yourself. So I'm going to bring these up on the screen. So. This is the core participant list for module one in the UK. I'm going to zoom in a little bit so you can see these. Now, again, we've talked about the inclusion of bereaved families on the previous episode. It's clearly an important part, but you can see here they've they've got a representation across all of the devolved nations. But then we start to look across the other groups that are included. You're looking at government department, government department, secretary of state, Office of the Medical Officer, Chris Whitty and Co., um, Secretary of State for the Environment, the Treasury, the Government Office for Science, the UK Security Agency, NHS, Local Government Association, you know, more local governments, Scottish ministers, Welsh government, so government, 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 public health around the devolved nations, um, Police Chiefs Council, Imperial College, you know, with their modelling. <laughs> coming to defend their their uh, their models no doubt the british medical association was eventually included the trade union congress but what you can see here is there's no there's going to be no critical voice from any one of these other than where the highest level of criticism will come from is from the bereaved families they're going to they're going to of course have a very strong view that the government should have done more to prevent the um spread of covid-19 and of course the risk uh of this inquiry is that it could be very much skewed towards doing that. Now that's, it's an important aspect to look at for the vulnerable groups. How could those vulnerable groups, uh, what steps could have been taken? But it, it's, 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 it's much feared that this inquiry will, will, will conclude that, you know, things should have just been done stronger, earlier and harder. Uh, and you can see why based upon these, uh, these initial selections. So, you know, there's no there's no body in here that's going to provide any evidence that critically analyzes the government's response. Now, in fairness, module one is predominantly about, as we've talked about, the kind of prior preparation. So you would expect some of these government departments, but then outside council looking at this independently is what's going to give you the real crux of was the government prepared for an event of this nature? My view is looking at this list, it's going to be um, the, the government essentially defending its own position. So it's not a good start. Uh, let's continue to look at module two now. So module two, what's module two all about? Well, this is where it gets really, really interesting. So module two begins to examine the UK political and administrative decision making. Uh, let's put that in, in, in more expressed terms. It's going to look at how the government made decisions relating to COVID-19 between early 2020 and um, up to February 2022, when the remaining COVID uh, restrictions were uh, removed at large. Um, it's going to take particular scrutiny, uh, scrutiny around the decisions taken by the Prime Minister, the Cabinet, um, the advice from the civil service, senior political, scientific and medical advisors, and relevant subcommittees, whether that's SPI-B, SPI-M, SAGE, and all these different groups that contributed to the pandemic response. So it's going to examine uh, the central government structures and bodies concerned with the response to the pandemic, uh, including devolved nations. It's gonna look at the initial understanding and response to 
the nature and spread of COVID-19 in light of information received from the World Health Organization. I laugh because uh, they have been deemed the authority on all, all things COVID, despite glaring gaps in their own evidence. Um, they'll look at other relevant international national bodies for advice on scientific, medical and other uh, advice, including from other countries. It will look at the government's initial strategies relating to community testing, surveillance and movement from uh, their, their, their initial strategy of contain to delay. Um, it will look at the decision making relating to UK wide and later England wide non-pharmaceutical interventions such as lockdowns, um, work from home reduction uh, you know approaches taken to reduction person to person content uh, contact including social distancing the use of facial coverings border controls the timeliness and reasonableness of such interventions including the likely effect effects of decisions had been taken earlier or differently um, again real kind of warning signs here the emphasis around could they have done more as opposed to was it the right thing to do um, identification about risk groups, vulnerable groups, et cetera, and assessment of how that was undertaken. Again, we can look back and say that the, the, the primary approach that should have been taken from our perspective here at the Pandemic Podcast is to clearly give proper public health advice to those who are most vulnerable. But that's a, that's a conversation for another day. And if you want more on that, well, look at our back catalogue of 400 episodes. Uh, we can signpost you to the specifics. Um, access to and use of um, medical and scientific expertise, data collection, mod, uh, modeling, all of this is part of module two, understanding how things transmit, uh, reinfect death rates, et cetera, the death certification system, excess mortality, all of these things are going to be looked at in module two. So this is why I think module two is a critical module. Um, they're going to look at public health communication, i.e. propaganda, uh, in relation to the uh, control of the spread of the virus, transparency of government messaging, the use of behavioural management and the, maintain the maintenance of public confidence in the government uh, and any breaches as well of government rules and standards by ministers and their advisors. So to me, module two is absolutely critical. It's also going to look at SAGE, COBRA, other government, non-governmental com committees, looking at how effectively were these groups used, uh, how effectively were these groups resourced, how transparent, not at all, were these groups, how effective were the decision-making uh, system for acting upon recommendations based by advisors. Um, it, it's going to look at the whole infrastructure of how the government uh, made, made its decisions. This is why I think this is one of the most critical modules. Um, they're going to look at, did uh, decision-makers have access to proper, reliable data and modelling? Was there sufficient professional breadth? There's lots I could say on that, you know, that we've talked about here on the podcast many times how there were more behavioral scientists and virologists and immunologists, you know, when he, when he disciplines underrepresented quite clearly, you know, it was not a holistic panel at all. Did committees have relevant and reliable data? How reliable was the modeling? I mean, it doesn't take a genius. It doesn't take a mathematician to see that we're not reliable. Was there an over-reliance on epidemiological modeling? Or certainly when it's inaccurate and it produces the decisions that were made, you could say that there was. To what extent was the economy, non-COVID issues, societal issues considered decision-making? Was non-scientific insight taken on board? When it comes to lockdowns, how effective were lockdowns in, in controlling transmission? How were economic and societal impacts assessed and weighed in the balance? 
you know, were the collateral harms assessed? Was there a cost-benefit analysis? What would be the likely effect of different types of intervention or earlier intervention? Essentially coming back to the big question they keep asking, which is would lives have been saved if lockdowns had been imposed earlier or differently? Again, that filter of lives is clearly an important one, but it, it neglects to, to, to recognise the impact of lives lost through the policy interventions and the quality of life that was impacted assessment of vulnerable groups, et cetera, looking at the uh, public health, uh, the effectiveness of public health advice. Um, was the declared policy of following the science a fair reflection of the actual decision-making, maintenance of public trust and confidence, uh, what worked, what didn't work, what could be done differently? So this is the core focus of module two. And again, to, to be very clear, the, the, the evidence for this has not started to be assessed. It's really looking at the focus and how this was going to be determined. And again, as with the previous module, they're going to be getting in experts to be uh, assessing some of these different things. And there is so much uh, there is so much to critique here. It's 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 really, um, really for me, this is one of the most significant modules. And again, to, to talk more about the listening exercise, which is where the public people like you and I may be able to contribute to the uh, inquiry. However, very much at this stage is stipulating that it's clearly going to focus on the bereaved and those who have suffered from the disease, including long COVID um, uh, and, and those who have suffered other forms of harm as a result of COVID-19. But it's not specific yet. So it's not at all specific. And again, this is here where it's really important that the impact of policy has to be included, in my view, in this listening exercise, which going back to a previous point around how comprehensive this inquiry will be or not be, uh, it's their ability to hear the, the breadth of voices that's really important. But how would you then distill that down? Because you can quite clearly imagine, hint, hint, a campaign that would come up in the future calling for people like you and I to make sure that we're included in that listening exercise, to make sure our voices are heard. Uh, and that could that could result in tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of submissions to that exercise, quite rightly, looking at some of these wider harms. So watch this space on that. Nudge, nudge, wake, wake. Okay, so uh, module two is absolutely critical. And as a result, you would expect to see a more balanced range of core participants uh, within <laughs> module two. Let's take a look, shall we? <laughs> Let's take a look indeed. Uh, so here's the core participant list for module two. Let's zoom in a bit more like we did previously. Again, the bereaved families have got precedence. This time we're seeing some minority groups included, uh, more vulnerable groups from those who have disabilities, uh, ethnic minorities, long COVID. So these are front and center of the inquiry so far, looking at this kind of uh, the um, wider uh, groups involved in care. But then we go back to the token list of government departments, same as previous, Government Office for Science, Welsh Government, devolved nation, national governments, many of the same from Module 1, including the BMA, Trade Unions and Imperial College. Again, looking at this list of core participants, where are the critical voices going to come from? Given that there are, you know, many different um, groups that have emerged over the last two years from Heart, Us for Them, um, save our rights together you know there are so many groups that have emerged over the last couple of years who have brought together experts 
um, uh, from across the UK and further afield, ourselves included, the Pandemic Podcast, Elevate, um, that, that should be included, the UK Medical Freedom Alliance. There are so many groups that should be included here as a coalition, but quite clearly not represented. So those critical voices, it seems, will not be re represented in official terms, certainly not within module one or two. Now, module two itself, in my view, is one of the most important ones, and it's gutting that we've not had the opportunity to participate at this, uh, at this stage. Um, I am working with a group of, uh, a, or a coalition of groups, looking at how we can retrospectively challenge to see if we can be added at a latter stage. There's still the opportunity to become a core participant in future modules, but to me, that module two is so, so critical. That's the place you're going to want to have the real scrutiny. Uh, and that's why the listening exercise, the public exercise, the public hearings are going to be so important because we will have the opportunity to submit evidence. But my view is if we had core participant status, being able to look at the, the disclosed documentation would give us a real insight in terms of how things have, have gone down and uh, you know where things have gone wrong and provide real critical evidence to the government's response. My view is if we want serious accountability, then we're going to have to look outside the scope of this inquiry. Nonetheless, there are things that we can do as we move forward. And certainly uh, we're exploring forms of action that we can take right now. Uh, and I say we, collective we, we're looking at the groups and organizations that have been involved, the scientists, the medical communities, uh, the media, independent journalists. There's lots of work being done behind the scenes thinking about how we can influence the course of this inquiry to make sure the critical voices are heard. Now, what's next? Well, module three, as I mentioned, has been announced. Module three looks at the healthcare system. It looks at the impact of COVID and the government response on the healthcare system uh, generally, but also on patients, hospital and other healthcare workers and staff. It's going to look at things like the use of DNRs, the rationing of critical care and its impact upon capacity, the triage systems, the shielding and care of the vulnerable, the NHS backlogs, the waiting times. Um, it's going to look at a whole range of impacts on the healthcare system. Uh, the scope for that module has now been announced and there's really, um, there's kind of 12 key points that are going to be looked at, uh, which I'll cover in a future episodes, but that information is now available. Um, and beyond module three, very broadly, the inquiry will also cover the kind of systemic and impact level issues within the UK, including vaccines, therapeutics, antiviral treatment across the UK. And again, that's such a critical component. And again, when the opportunity arises, that is where critical evidence is going to be absolutely essential. Now, given that there isn't a module for those yet, there is hope that there, at least on that component, that some real might and force can be put into the critical conversation there. Uh, but obviously, the modules will also continue to look at the care sector, government procurement, testing and tracing, government financial response, the health inequalities in the UK, education impact on young people. Again, there's lots of organizations out there that hopefully will have the opportunity to, uh, to participate. The impact on business and self-employed, the impact on hospitality, retail, tourism, arts, et cetera, and the impact of COVID on public services. So there is still a real chance for participation on the impact level, but really at the decision-making stage in module two, that's where that's where the rubber meets the road, in my view. That's where it's really important to look at um, uh, the, the, the decisions that were made, because fundamentally, it's those decisions that have caused the harms. It's those decisions that have created the collateral harm. 
Uh, so without critical representation inside of those modules, it's really it's really quite concerning about the trajectory this will take. That's not to say that things that they've already got in the module aren't important, particularly looking at the vulnerable groups, et cetera, and the bereaved. It's really critical that the inquiry looks at those groups, but to miss the entire the entire crit the critique of the government's response uh, in the core participant list is quite frankly shocking. And uh, we will see what we can do to retrospectively challenge like the TUC did, like the BMA did, to be added to the core participant list because without critical representation, you know, who's going to be asking the critical questions? Who's going to be providing the, 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 the evidence that challenges the government decisions? So um, in conclusion, early stage, you know, my opening response, I said at the beginning, the short answer is, will this, uh, will this, um, this inquiry represent a real chance of exposing the harms of the pandemic response? Well, it might actually expose some of the harms, but uh, will it expose why those harms were created? Will it create accountability for the decisions that were made? I'm not so sure, particularly uh, given what I've shared with you today. But rest assured, uh, there will be opportunities within the public hearings to provide evidence. And like I said, watch this space. We will be working hard. And at the very least that we can do, is use independent media like this, the Pandemic Podcast, other channels, other groups, other media outlets to try and influence um, the public perception of what's gone on over the last couple of years. Because, you know, as we've done over the last two years of the Pandemic Podcast, we've spent, well, I've spent all my time in the last two years examining this in a critical front. And I ain't given up here, you know, at this juncture, you know, the, 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 the past is the past, but we've got to be able to look back and say, here's what's went, here's what we believe went wrong. Let's make sure it doesn't happen again, because, you know, the whole conversation is about how do we prepare for the next one? It's like, why is everyone talking about the next one? Statistically, we are unlikely to see anything of this level unless this kind of gain of function research continues to advance at the pace that it does and other leaks occur in the way that this one has, you know, that's maybe speculation, but, you know, there is plenty of evidence out there right now. You know, we have to be concerned about people out there fiddling with nature in a way that could be detrimental to humankind. You know, this isn't limited to viruses. You know, we have to be very aware, actually, that every single major crisis that we faced over the last couple of years, from the response to COVID, to the conflict in Ukraine, to the economic crisis, they're all man-made. They're all man-made problems or human-made problems. You know, we've got to take a strong look in the mirror as a society, as a human race, and say, what are we doing? You know, <laughs> there's a simple lesson that we can learn from the last couple of years. It's excess intervention in the course of human life is harmful and it's creating more harm than benefit. Of course, there's technology and things that we can do to uh, prolong our lives and live healthier lives, of course, and we should continue to obviously embrace that technology that can help us live longer, more fulfilling lives. But in a, when we start to interfere with nature's own processes, then we will continue to experience the consequences as we have been done, as we have been doing for the last couple of years and uh, we're still witnessing today. But ultimately, my, uh, one of our team, one of my, my mentors says, um, I've got 99 problems and every one of them is a human being. Well, every major problem that we're facing at the critical level, at the, the global level right now, is a function of a human decision or a you know a human decision making capacity you know every single major problem that we're facing right now is down to humans and uh, we've really got to take a strong look about the future that we 
path that we're on if we don't really make a course correction right now and an adjustment to how the world is operated and run. So uh, will this inquiry do that? No. <laughs> will it bring any accountability? Well, we already know that it won't. It was already uh, set out from the very beginning that there is no legal precedent. So there will be no arrests. There'll be no, um, you know, there'll be no real accountability. But what will come is a set of recommendations about what we can do next time, you know, to make sure we don't make the same mistakes. But what those recommendations will be, who knows? But we can begin to guess that they're probably more of the same. So uh, we've got to look at this differently. We've got to look at different ways that we can challenge what's going on. And uh, that's what we'll continue to do. So thank you very much for watching this uh, extended episode on the COVID-19 uh, inquiry so far. If you would like to learn more, on Wednesday night, we have an online panel uh, assembled. We are featuring um, a number of uh, key guests. We've got Dr. David Patton. We've got uh, Dr. Claire, uh, sorry, Professor David Patton. We've got Dr. Claire Craig. Um, we've got Francis Hall, we've got Liz Evans, um, we've got a whole range of speakers looking at um, the public inquiry um, so far. So uh, we've, we've also got um, uh, Paul Freuters. Uh, we've got a really great panel coming up for this online event where we'll start to look at not only the, um, the, the inquiry so far, but the key questions that need to be asked and also start to bring in some of the evidence that we we believe should be included inside of this public inquiry. So if you'd like to participate in that, 8 p.m. UK time on Wednesday, um, uh, uh, go to weareelevate.org forward slash public inquiry to register for that online event on Wednesday night. Uh, so uh, that follows our recent um, public screening of the uh, private screening, rather, of the Safe and Effectory doc documentary, which we hosted last week. Um, so we've got more and more of these events coming up where you can uh, access the, the, real, um, the real key players who are uh, challenging what's happened over the last couple of years. So uh, watch this space for Wednesday. Go to weareelevate.org forward slash public inquiry. Uh, and it'd be great to see you at our next event. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you again very soon on the Elevate podcast. Have a great evening. <laughs>